Shift is brought to you by Continental. As one of the world's leading mobility suppliers, Continental is developing intelligent solutions to make driving safer, more efficient, and more connected. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. There are 500,000 new electric vehicle chargers being built thanks to funding in the Federal Infrastructure Bill. There's lots of questions about where they should be located, how reliable they should be, and how fast they can charge vehicles. By contrast, there's not as many questions about how they should look and feel. In a lot of ways, what's been built so far looks about the same as its predecessor, the gas pump. It does not have to be that way. My guest today is Sarah Martin, an architect at her own firm and design director at Adam Power, where she's working on ways to take today's charging equipment and integrate it into buildings and other public infrastructure, like street lamps, park benches, and more. The result is aesthetically pleasing chargers that seamlessly blend into public spaces, and perhaps that helps cities, and perhaps it helps drive EV adoption. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah Martin. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, likewise, um, I don't think we've ever had an architect on the show before, uh, at least somebody who who officially called that their profession. So how did you get nice. interested in design and architecture? Tell us a little bit about what you do. Great. Okay, so no pressure. I'm just the first architect that you've met on here. I love it. I will represent <laughs> my, uh, my kind well, I hope. Yeah, um, architecture is, it's a really fun career because we get a range of design challenges. I probably, like a lot of architects, started into the profession just because I liked kind of arranging my room in high school, and I was one of those design nerds who just wanted to kind of make everything look just so, and it's a great career for people like that, um, but one surprising thing about it that I've told a lot of friends is that you it's that career where you get to put on all the different hats and imagine like, okay, how would I solve this industry's design problem or that industry's design problem? So it's fun that way. And as we will, I'm sure, discuss, that's that's been a broad range of projects, you know, for me. Um, but yeah, to give you some timeline, I graduated from architecture school about 15 years ago. I spent the first 10 years or so of my career doing commercial um, projects. So that was like corporate headquarters and hotels and um, utility buildings and just all kinds of a real range of projects. Um, And then I started my own practice where I did historic home renovation. So I've kind of gone from big scale to small scale. And actually, while I was at the corporate firm where I started, I um, did a project with a client who has still a, a colleague that I stay in touch with and is now my connection to Adam Power, who hired our firm to do a design for an electric vehicle charging station that had solar collection on the roof, a battery building, and then dispensers so that you could drive cars up and power with this solar collected um electricity. And so that was kind of my entrance through that corporate firm into the design possibilities, you know, of EV and like what that could look like. How long ago was that project? And, you know, what, how did you start connecting dots in, in, as you said before, you you start wearing a lot of hats and thinking about different industries. What did you start thinking about transportation and automotive at, at that juncture? Yeah, that was, just a great project to kind of get your feet wet in this industry because um, it looks at that scale, you're essentially talking about a very familiar prototype of like a gas station, you know, like there's a little building and there's these dispensers and there's the little roof structure over the top. Like it feels very familiar. 
But that project is where I really started to think like, okay, well, we have that existing archetype, you know, that's a common type of building that people are used to seeing. How do we differentiate it? And, you know, the solar panels can do a lot of that. Like if you do have solar collection happening at the same time, you have dispensing, they look so different than a gas station normally looks, you know, that they differentiate. We also, in that project, looked at like standard kind of crystalline panels, but we also looked at solar films and things that you could apply that were like thin collectors um, so that you could have a lot more freedom with the form on that. So that, it did open my eyes to like, what is this landscape going to look like as EVs start to become so prolific, which now we're seeing happen um, at that big scale of like a gas station size project, a whole multi vehicle thing. And then all the way down to like, what are these dispensers? What are they going to look like? What do they look like in your house versus in the city? You know, like there's just a lot of industrial design and spatial architectural design questions in that. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, electrification is here and we're seeing uh, vehicles uh, of many models on the road every day. So I'm curious, how has the arrival of this inflection points in uh, the EV landscape, how has that affected architecture and design? Yeah, so um, when architects are beginning to plan a building, we really start big and then get into the details. So with those first sketches that we're doing for any kind of design project, whether it's the big, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet industrial kind of complexes versus um, a university project all the way down to smaller kind of urban shops and restaurants and those kinds of things. We're starting with like, okay, what's the big idea for that building? And then all the little things that we have to decide as we go through, like specifying materials and specifying the windows and all the plumbing fixtures and all those things are always referential to that, you know, initial sketch, the guiding idea. We're trying to get some cohesion among all of those things. Um, and obviously there are huge markets for all of those accessories and products that architects specify to kind of keep the design um, integrated throughout all of it. And that's the point that EV is at right now, is that like there's a relatively limited palette of electric vehicle charging equipment available. Like a lot of them kind of have that look like an ATM or a spaceship has <laughs> landed and it just, they're kind of big, they're a little bit clunky. They have all these like computer panels on them. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but you know what I mean? They're, they're kind of, they stand out. Um, and so what's cool is that architects, can drive that market and say like, we need dispensers that are more integrated. We need ones that can blend with the material palette of the building. Um, or maybe we want the ability to have some kind of custom design features because if we have a client whose brand is neon or you know whatever their kind of look is, maybe we wanna carry that through to the EV charging so that we don't have to say, okay, well, there's this one part of the building that looks like an afterthought and doesn't really blend with that. Gotcha. Okay. I have lots of questions. Uh, before we go further, I want to ask you, uh, you are a consultant and design director at Adam Power. Uh, tell us about Adam Power, what the company does. Yes. So um, Adam Power is a technology development company. And so they have a core technology that is a digital circuit breaker. And so the technology is really cool. Like this is a company that I met through that project we talked about before, the electric vehicle charging station. Um, the colleague that I worked with that on is where is now developing technology with Adam Power. And so that's where they first came onto my radar is like this kind of you know social connection um, that has now professionally continued. And 
the digital circuit breaker has all kinds of potential, like in circuit breaker panels and buildings, houses, like anywhere that you have a load center or circuit breakers, like this is something that could be um, digitized and given a lot more control than it's been given or than it's had with the kind of old school mechanical breaker. And also the technology that they're developing allows communication from the circuit breaker to an electric vehicle. So the requirements that electric vehicle supply equipment have in order to be EVSE and enable that communication of like what the car needs and what it, you know, what kind of flow it can take, that can all happen in one of these tiny little circuit breakers rather than having to happen in like a separate apparatus at the dispenser that's so big and bulky and added on to a traditional system. So when my colleague at Adam Power was beginning to see the potential for how that tiny little form factor of kind of the guts of the dispenser meant that then the dispenser gets to look like whatever we want, that's when he called and was like, okay, let's continue this conversation. You know, like it doesn't just have to be this big bulky thing. Um, And so we started out, oh, just brainstorming, you know, what are all the ways this could look? Like if you have a client, say municipalities where they have like park planning departments and city planning departments, like those people might want really integrated vehicle charging. So they already have like parking bollards or park benches or other site furnishings in their public parks. And what if they want to be able to integrate dispensers directly into that existing furniture or site furniture that looks like it? We could do that because really we just have to run this wire and a little pilot light to one of those, you know, existing kind of furnishings. Um, So that's one way that we're looking at it. We also thought about, you know, there's so many businesses that are parking lot focused, like restaurants and shops and big box stores and little strip malls and cities, like all these kinds of places that you have people pulling up to do business or purchase something. And they have brands and they want those brands to be right there. Like as soon as the customer arrives in the parking lot, they know where they are, you know? So that's the other thing I've been working with Adam Power on is how do we um, offer dispensers to companies that want their brand to be right out there? Like, can we make one that advertises the sale for the local grocery store? Can we make one that has like the right colors for the golf range, you know? And like that kind of customization is endless. What's the status of some of the, uh, the things you've worked on? Is there still a, still at the brainstorming stage? Are you taking any prototypes to prospective customers? Like where are you at with some of uh, the developments? Yeah, so um, there, oh, there's so many, there's so many. So Adam Power has kind of a standard pedestal that is a competitor for like most of the other pedestals in the market. That's just their basic pedestal. Those, that one was developed first before we got into some of the custom um, offerings. And so it's the most deployed. Like there are already a few sites that have those being installed and that they're producing those. Then for the custom like commissioned EVSE, where we're kind of trying to blend with a brand of a company or something, those are mostly at the point of like imaging, you know, like trying to put their brand in the dispenser and then start to show how the the cables and the cable management, all those other things kind of work with that image. So those are still in kind of the design phase. And then um, we are also developing kind of an in-between where it's not like commissioned for a specific brand, but we are developing a really attractive, what I would call a bollard charger. And a lot for people that don't know what a bollard is, it's basically a a parking um, barrier. You'll see them in like, you'll see really nice ones and kind of like along a boardwalk where you transition from a pedestrian walkway to a parking area. And they're these nice kind of fluted cast iron posts. And those can be um, 
EVSE. They can be electric vehicle supply equipment with this kind of system integrated in. So right now I'm working with a foundry actually to do some like custom cast iron pouring to figure out how we can prototype those and then bring those to like cities, municipalities and other places that want that parking um, barricade, but also want to be able to charge vehicles. I'm curious, like we're at a particular moment in time where a lot of the funds that were designated for EV chargers in the uh, infrastructure bill last fall are being released and uh, the country is is starting to to build out this network of 500,000 EV chargers. And I, mm-hmm. I almost want to be like, can we pause that a minute? Because you've got all these really interesting and novel ideas. Uh, I'm curious if you think that they're being rolled out in a, a design friendly way. Kind of the existing chargers that are rolling out now. You know, it's a mix. Um, so designers... <laughs> Sometimes there are answers to questions like this could be frustrating because it's it depends, you know, um, like whenever I see the like Tesla superchargers along the side of the road, like that's a certain look, you know, it almost reminds me of like the doo-wop gas stations that had like all these crazy neon signs and bright lights like that can be appropriate, especially when you're trying to kind of catch someone's attention and they're driving down the highway. So there are certainly cases where even though the EV chargers aren't like blended in, they can still have a really nice kind of eye catching look. And so, yes, I think sometimes that's a really nice um, approach. But then the ones that really stand out to me that I wish we could kind of hit the pause button and think about alternatives are when um, you're in like a nicely landscaped parking lot and everything like color palettes pretty restrained and it feels like a planned environment. And then you have these kind of large plasticky looking bot things (laughs) that are sitting on the site and like obviously stand out, you know, those are the ones that I like, I do wish we could, I wish we could run everything at the same speed so that, yes, you could just kind of deploy this more developed, you know, product. Um, But at the same time, it's an emerging technology. And that's, you know, sometimes there has to be a first generation out there before we can improve it and put the new thing out there, too. Perhaps along those lines, you wrote in an editorial for Architectural West uh, earlier this year, and I'll quote it this. EV charging stations don't have to be boring towers that resemble a droid from a galaxy far, far away. And I think that dovetails <laughs> nicely with what you're saying now that that's perhaps what we're seeing now in certain places. But but mm-hmm. Gen 2 is going to look a lot more uh, aesthetically pleasing. Along the lines of what you're talking about, are, are there building codes that restrict potential design? Uh, are there standards? How, do, how does that side that's emerging for EV chargers kind of affect the the work and prototypes uh, that that you're kind of bringing to the table? Yes, it is a heavy, heavily regulated industry, as everything in architecture is. Um, we are a life safety focused industry. So there's a lot of trip hazards and head knocking hazards and just, you know, wayfinding, like all these kinds of considerations you have to think about whenever you're guiding people from one part of a space to another, exterior and interior. Um, EVSE, electric vehicle supply equipment itself, has to be UL listed. And so it's like a product that is laboratory tested and really um, has to meet all of those requirements before it can be deployed. So that's, that is one thing that we're kind of wrestling with, because as I talk to you about the design potential, I'm mentioning like, oh, we could just integrate it into existing furniture. Well, we can't actually go and retrofit it into a park bench that's already there. You know what I mean? Like we would have to develop a park bench product that would then get UL listed and installed. Like there's a little bit of this like disjointed timeline that has to happen because of the requirements. Um, but 
the more we do that, the more we have these prototypes and kind of develop products for people, I think the more seamless that will become. And the more we'll become familiar with like, what do these regulations mean and how do they limit, you know, what we can do. Um, now that said, the limitations are, are relatively familiar to like I've described like site furnishings and industries like that, that anything that you can imagine might be installed in a public space could also kind of be an EV. So there's not that many limits to it. I mean, we see all kinds of crazy like bike parking, you know, apparatuses and all these other kinds of things in parks. Um, really, it's just a matter of like, do you have a housing that can, that the cable can run up into and dispense, you know, to the vehicle. And as long as you have that and a place for a little pilot light so that it, you know, when it's active, like it really can look like a lot of different things. So it's, it's pretty fun to kind of think about those possibilities. You know, I asked my last question as if the standards and codes are, are a barrier or hindrance. And, and maybe there's a, an opposite question there. Can they be a, a catalyst for proliferation of, of EV charging? I think so, because when you do have codes and standards in place and there are, you know, that is already a regulated industry. Um, I think it almost it helps with that wide adapt adaptation of this technology because there's a little bit of comfort level that like, okay, well, this is the same type of laboratory testing that they do for lighting bollards and sites. And this is the same type that they do for street furnishings. And so it does help add to the familiarity of it. Um, and for any of the extra layers of regulation that are needed, that's where these early prototype designs are so important because as we develop those and work with you know, manufacturers and towns who are installing them and all these, all the players, any local code adaptations that need to happen or amendments, you know, to the codes that are national going down to these little municipalities will be made and then will serve as templates and formulas for us to follow. So the more we kind of like get them installed and try these new things, we'll have that code lingo kind of established to help the comfort level of everybody that comes after. Okay. I'm curious, does... Does just making these look more aesthetically pleasing, does that give the EV industry more momentum overall? Is there a connection between those two things or or not? You know, that's a good question. I think I think the effect is more it kind of reminds me of like the MP3 player wave. I mean, this is going way back, you know, to like an old technology, but when there are a few Ted talks out there that I kind of love that talk about like, why did the iPod work so well when there were all these other like MP3 players on the market that looked like a Blackberry, which by the way, is a phone with buttons on it. <laughs> when it's too young in your audience or looked like these other, like, they didn't look all that exciting. They didn't look like some new technology, even though they were kind of a revolutionary device. And the more, like when Apple came in, and of course Apple is that kind of iconic company for understanding that the power of design is what will speed adoption of this technology. That's a great example where like the iPod looked different and it looked sleek and it was something that people were interested, like you weren't embarrassed to be carrying it around. It didn't look like a pager. It didn't look like a, you know, organizer. And so I, I think you're going to see a similar, similar kind of phenomenon here where it, it's not like aesthetics are necessarily slowing things down because we don't have all of these options yet. But I do think it appeals to a part of the market who might not be in a hurry until they get excited about something. It's that visual part where they're like, oh, well, 
oh, I didn't know it could look cool too. You know, like we were thinking about this and sure we had to because our market is demanding it or our customers or whatever. But like, if there's this potential for it to also elevate my brand, then it is more exciting, you know? And I think it helps to like broaden the net of people who are interested in getting into EV because suddenly it's just another thing they can kind of emotionally attach to, you know? We're going to take a quick break from my conversation with Sarah for this word from this week's sponsor. Every year, about 36,000 lives are lost on U.S. roadways. Continental is working to reduce that number to zero through advanced safety technologies that are available right now. Nearly 10,000 lives could be saved every year, and 1.1 million injuries could be prevented if currently available safety technologies existed on every vehicle. The technology is already here to help you get safely there. From lane departure warning systems to emergency brake assist, today's advanced driver assistance systems provide the building blocks for the automated driving of the future. Continental is using its full innovative prowess to drive this trend and develop intelligent technologies that assist the driver in critical situations. The advantage? Increased safety, more convenience, and greater efficiency. Continental's commitment to the long-term strategy of Vision Zero zero fatalities, zero injuries, and zero crashes, will continue to drive developments in safety technologies, making safety available to everyone. This means working on new systems that improve vehicle safety across all vehicle classes. With Vision Zero in mind, Continental is continuously innovating solutions that contribute to greater road safety in and outside the vehicle. From sensors, control units, and motion control solutions to human-machine interface technology, intelligent infrastructure solutions, and software, Continental masters the building blocks of automated driving and connectivity, leading the way to fully automated vehicles and a safer world. No matter your destination, advanced safety technology can help you get safely there. For more, visit Continental.com. And now back to my conversation with Sarah Martin, Design Director for Adam Power and Principal at Open Door Architecture. What is the additional cost when we when it comes to custom designing an EV charger? Is this something where it's you know ultimately some municipality needs to buy uh, you know fifty a hundred of them and they're you know it's going to matter that this costs a little bit more or or is there not that much uh, difference? There is a difference, um, but you know it's so hard. So many customers that we are designing these custom EVs for EVSEs and designing like concept drawings for range from like, maybe we're installing four, like at this townhouse or six at this little shop all the way up to 50 or a hundred or thousands at like fast food chains that are all over the country, you know, like there's such this range. And so when you're looking at it, you know, it's a numbers game, like the bigger the scale gets on this, the less, um, differential there is there in the custom to the standard, but for the clients that want four or six of them, they may play, pay 50% more to get the custom, um, thing. But at the same time, we're only talking about a few thousand dollars because there's not that many of them. You know, if you're paying 50% more and you wanted 2000 of them, that'd be a pretty big impact, but it's, it's very similar to what you see with like any kind of design customization. The more you order, the easier that premium is to absorb. I see. That's really interesting. You mentioned townhouses because I think of uh, one of the barriers for EV adoption overall is that there's a healthy chunk of the, the market out there where people don't live in a single family home where they have their own personal garage. They they live in apartments or multifamily dwellings and in getting them to adopt EVs means that these places that they live also have to have the charging equipment that that you just described mm-hmm. and perhaps making that more 
uh, you know, design friendly, aesthetically pleasing is is one way to convince them to adopt it. Yeah, I think it it can be, and th- those have been. We've had a few conversations with multifamily developers, um, and Adam Power. One of one of our first orders or first big orders from Adam Power for Adam Power is a multifamily development like that in kind of a parking deck high rise um, apartment situation. Um, in New York. And that one was even kind of the standard offering, like nothing really special about it, just the small wall box that gets, you know, mounted to the parking deck wall near the cars. Um, But image is a big part of the marketing plan for multifamily. Like when you're in that kind of development phase and you're finding the land and you're doing your due diligence and figuring out what your offering is going to be in terms of price point and the aesthetics of the development and all that kind of thing. um, EV charging is a big selling point, just having it. But then you add on this layer of being able to kind of integrate it in with, with the aesthetic. um, And I think it's just so much easier for them to sell, you know, because it's just another kind of image um, heartstring that they can kind of pull whenever they're putting together these idyllic neighborhoods that they're developing. You know, it's funny. We started earlier talking about uh, gas stations and mm-hmm. in the you know proliferation of electric vehicle chargers, I hear a lot that, you know, we don't have to replicate this gas station model. And that that I typically think about in the context of the geography of charging that you can charge at home and not not you don't have to think about this en route charging. But you're giving me this whole other dimension to the uh, idea of not replicating the gas station model. Uh, it's that this thing doesn't have to look like a pump, uh, it, right? And it, it's it has right, exactly. to, it has to be designed friendly for a variety of reasons, including those mm-hmm. those those neighborhoods. Well, and to your question about like can can codes and regulations be like a wonderful jumping off point for design innovation? I mean, what you just said is exactly that's how we need to kind of change our brains around charging is that we're so used to thinking of like, go and fill up the gas tank at this one-stop shop gas station. It's really fast and you have to go to it and you fill up the tank and then you leave it. Like we can just, we don't have to hold on to that anymore, you know, just release, release that image because, because yeah, you can charge anywhere. And most, I mean, for 80% of the market, if you're charging overnight where you're parked sleeping at your house, then you've got the power you need to do your commute and to get your groceries and pick up your kids and live your life on a day-to-day basis. And then the much smaller problem is the problem of like, well, the two times a year when I take the 500 mile trip, you know? And so that's Adam power is, is really focused in on that level two charging. That's like much more economical, much easier to install takes a little bit longer, but the truth is for the, for your typical day-to-day driving you're topping off that tank in 30 to 60 minutes, even at level two, you know, because you just haven't used that much day to day. And so it's it's a very, it's a seamless way to think about it, to think you don't have to go to a gas station and like fill up the tank. Thinking about gas stations and chargers, uh, I'm starting to think about power lines for the grid and some of these like highway spurs that cut through cities. Is, is infrastructure just inherently ugly? Well, <laughs> if you want my personal opinion, <laughs> It does seem that way sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, but I'm starting to think maybe it doesn't have to be based on this conversation. Have to be. No, it's so true. Um, you know, I think that I think that whenever we do go on these long road trips, because you go through certain um, little towns and cities that really have thought about it, and like their retaining walls and their sound walls and all those things and their bridges look like they're designed with care. Versus, like you know, some of the more outlying areas that may not have that budget or planning department. 
it just looks like whatever the standard stock steel sections are available and precast concrete and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, it's cool to be at a point where we, we really are seeing a change in the landscape of how, of the impact that cars have on our life and our urban planning and our streets. Um, and yeah, I think we should like grab onto that with, you know, grab it, grab it and try to write it to like a more beautiful um, look for those items because they don't have to be like eyesores like they have been historically. It's a really interesting question overall because I think there's a lot of people out there who think that our public, uh, and our, you know, public spheres are too car centric right now. So uh, I wonder if they would argue we don't need nicer chargers. We just need to not have cars charging in, in certain areas. But but maybe there is a a happier medium here than than we may have once realized. Yeah, I mean, vehicles in pedestrian areas is kind of. You know, it's a question that every city is kind of looking for, like, what's what's our answer? Or every campus, you know, universities, you hear this kind of conversation a lot. Um, and the good thing is, like, what we want to develop and this kind of design flexibility we're aiming for allows you to kind of meet the right size solution to the right problem. You know what I mean? So ideally, you've already got parking kind of consolidated where it needs to be. So if you're on a campus and you have this outer ring where all of the vehicles need to stay so that then people can have their pedestrian access to classes and buildings, um, that's where the EV should be, you know, and we should have offerings that work so that the, the supply equipment can be out in those parking areas and not have to be integrated in. Um, but then you just needed to work with the, the architecture of that parking lot, you know? And so there are more demanding environments and less demanding environments. But I think what we'll see since adoption is happening so quickly now is that we want EVSE supply equipment that can blend with all of those conditions that are already existing. Parking lots that nobody cares about, beautiful shopping centers with all the landscaping and everything in between, you know, so that we can put them where it's convenient and people can develop those product projects without the EV having to steer vehicle access or location or drive the design. Sarah, I'm going to switch gears a little bit now. Uh, you were the lead architect on HGTV's Urban Oasis in 2017. I want to hear about that experience. And, and then more generally, two-part question is there a connection on integrating refrigerators into kitchens with with integrating chargers into public spaces as we've been talking about? I love it. This is great. Okay, good, good. Um, so yes, thanks for bringing that up. That was a super fun opportunity. Um, the firm that I have with my husband focuses, as I mentioned, on historic home renovation. And um, so the network that produces the giveaway homes for HGTV is housed actually in my hometown. And so they do a lot of content recording here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, and usually that's just promos and stuff. We don't actually really get to host like the big, cool giveaway houses all that often. But um, a few years into us starting our practice, I got this call, you know, friend of a friend kind of thing where they were like, hey, could you come check out this house? That, by the way, is five houses away from my own house. Like, it's in my neighborhood. You know, it's my turf. Like, this is totally my target market, which is how I got the call. Because they were like, oh, it's, it's in Fourth and Gill? Call Sarah. Like, that's her area, you know? And so, um, so small town, thank you for that. And sure enough, I met with this homeowner, ostensibly. They were kind of undercover, you know, like, oh, we're going to renovate this house for ourselves. And, you know, they had this whole story. And we were so busy, actually, I almost said no, because we just we just had this long backlog and I didn't know how I'd squeeze it in. 
And then they immediately dropped the pretense and were like, well, actually, it's, it's an HTTP giveaway house. Would you be interested? <laughs> it's like, yes, call the nanny. Let's figure out how we can work this out, you know? And so um, it was just a really fun project for us because it was in a historic neighborhood and it was this like beautiful craftsman home that we got to renovate. And when HGTV does something, I mean, they do it all the way. So it's, it's the floor plans and it's all these views. I actually had them pick, I had like five kitchen layouts that we showed them that my husband had like drawn up and um, they picked the one that had the best focal length for the cameras. But I'd never had a client decide on a kitchen design for that reason before. I mean, it was great in other respects too, but it was pretty funny that this was like what it's like to work on a TV house, you know? Uh, but the cool thing is that house has since been sold to an owner that now loves it. And she's in the you know garden club and is on the home tour. And it's just a cool like addition to the neighborhood and a neat um, feather in our cap for that young practice. You get, sure. to walk, you get to walk past it all the time and uh, yes. you're just down the block. Totally. I get to keep an eye on it, you know. So second part to that, Sarah, um, is there a connection between uh, the interior design when you're thinking about uh, a kitchen and integrating appliances with the idea that you're integrating uh, EV charging equipment into a public infrastructure? Yeah. So thinking about, you know, when we start this is very like micro macro, you know, like here's this tiny example of a kitchen and here's this big like town center or whatever you might be planning with EV. Um, but it is, it, it's funny how many similarities there really are because when I'm laying out a kitchen, the appliances are the, the first thing, you know, there you, you've heard that metaphor of like, you put the big important rocks in the glass before you fill it with sand and water. Like that's a kitchen, you know? And so like, you do have to kind of think about where's the fridge, where's the stove, what's that kitchen triangle that everybody likes to talk about? How is it accessible? But really the, where you're placing it is considering similar things. Like where am I going to put it? That it's not going to be this hulking mass that's visually obstructing my sight lines from the dining area to the kitchen. How can I integrate it a little bit more? Also, is it next to a countertop so I can place things easily when I'm taking them in and out? And then is it close to the other appliances? So it is funny because when you're thinking about EV placement, that's what you want to think about. Is it convenient to where the existing traffic patterns are already working? Is it, um, do you have all the parking resources that you need around there? Do you have a building nearby or are you going to have to build a substation? You know, like you have to kind of accommodate it in the same way that you have to think about the technology that's in our houses already, like appliances. Um, so yeah, that, that's honestly my favorite thing about being an architect and being in design is that like at the end of the day, the problems are kind of all the same problem. Like how do we design for humans? How do we design for the ways that humans live so that when it's installed, People can look at it and say, it's beautiful and I love using it and it's easy and it's all those things that you want, you know? Sarah, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Thanks for your time today. Great to, uh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. It was a real joy. I've really enjoyed this conversation and thought the topic dovetails well with the conversation we had a few weeks back with Alex Grusin from Whitricity, who's working on wireless charging. Both these in my mind kind of underscore the point that what we have now is just the first iteration in charging equipment and that there are new and better alternatives on the way, hopefully in time to be built as part of this 500,000 charger build out. If you like this episode and you like the shift podcast overall, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That is the show for this week. Thank you again to Sarah for her time. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you next week.